Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you all. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's a difficult path. I mean, it sounds, it's a proverb. It sounds kind of nice, the sort of thing you'd see on a doily or a pillow. But it's actually a really difficult thing to sort of wrap our minds around. The idea that we have all these plans, and we have all these intentions, and we have all these goals, and all these objectives, and yet it isn't our plans, no matter how many and multiple they might be, it isn't our plans ultimately that stand. It's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We have many plans, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. We see that as clearly in this text as we do anywhere in all of Scripture. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and before we just sort of finish up with the last of chapter 6, I kind of want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of the whole chapter, because we see a sort of a drastic declension here in John chapter 6. And what I mean by that is, at the beginning of John chapter 6, we see incredible numbers of people excited about Jesus, right? Beginning of John 6 is where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that 5,000 number is just men, so we can sort of multiply that out and go, with women and children, we're probably talking in excess of 10,000 people who received food from Jesus at no cost to themselves, and accordingly, they were excited, right? The people were excited. In fact, they were so excited, it tells us at the beginning of John 6, that they wanted to take him by force and make him the king. They're like, if this guy can feed us, he'd be a good king, right? And then, so they, Jesus moves away from them because the timing's not right, but the crowds are excited excited about him. They're excited about what he can provide and what he can do. Then Jesus moves across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and the people are so excited about him that even though they don't know exactly when he left or where he went, they find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee because they're anxious to have him feed them again. And if you're with us last week, we saw that Jesus enters into a sort of a deep and meaningful theological conversation about what they truly need versus what they're seeking. He says to them, you're, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs and understood what the signs pointed to, but because you received the bread and you had your stomachs full. The people had seen the bread, they had seen and tasted the fish, and they hadn't looked past the bread and the fish to the greater spiritual truth that the bread and the fish was pointing to. All they'd said was, hey, this is a guy who will give us free food, let's go find him and get more free food. And at each point in the beginning of the discourse, which we looked at last week, Jesus is pointing them to spiritual truth, and they just keep sort of trying to draw him back to, yeah, give us something to eat. You know, our forefathers in the wilderness, God gave them manna. It might be nice if you'd give us manna. But there's this huge crowd of people that's that's excited about Jesus. By the time we get to the end of John chapter 6... Not only are there not 10,000 people clamoring after him to make him king, but there's barely 12. And one of the 12 is a troublemaker, right? To go from 10,000 people who are excited about him to 12 who are a little nervous at the end of the chapter, I mean, that's a pretty drastic declension in one chapter. We would look at him with our common sort of modern day sensibility, with our church strategy, with our marketing mindset, and we would go, Jesus, man, you you should just give them some bread. They'll stay longer, right? You'll have more opportunities to talk to them if you just give them what they're asking for. But as we'll see in the course of our study this morning, Jesus never satisfies them physically. He doesn't ever give them the meal they're after. He doesn't satisfy them physically. He eliminates their personal authority while elevating his own. He questions their knowledge, he undermines their religion and their faith, and he offends their sensibilities. 
In the course of this discourse, he undermines their authority, he elevates his own, he questions what they know, he pulls aside the the veil of their sort of formalized religion, and he offends their sensibilities. The reality is, if you and I were in the crowd, we'd probably walk away too. Jesus doesn't do any of the common marketing things we would sort of assume you do. Don't tell people they don't know what they're talking about. Don't tell people they don't have any authority. Don't tell people they don't have any autonomy. Just sort of feed their egos, scratch their backs, give them what they're asking for, and you'll be able to keep a bigger crowd. What I want you to see in the text here is that Jesus is more concerned with obeying the will of the Father and articulating theological truth than he is in making sure he has a large crowd of people following him at the end of this discourse. If he'd wanted to just hold on to people, he could have done a number of things to retain them, but he delivers the truth of where his confidence in, and as a result of that articulation, the people abandon him in droves. I mean, it's, I, mean I get nervous when people get up in the service to go out to the law. I don't even know. It's like they have to go to the bathroom, and I think they don't like me as a teacher. You know, they've got to go, right? I take that very personal. Imagine losing 9,900 and... Well, I'm not going to do the math in front of a bunch of people, but imagine losing all those people, right? But Jesus is articulating where his confidence in. He doesn't appear in this text to be nervous about the loss of 9,988 people, right? I think that's right. Somebody whistled. I can tell you're proud of me there, right? We see in the text that the people see him, but they don't believe. In verse 41, they grumble. In verse 52, they dispute among themselves. In verse 60, they take offense. And finally, in verse 66, they leave. And not just the Jews who were there for a meal. In verse 66, there are many of them who had called themselves his disciples who abandoned him. And all Jesus has done is articulate theological truth. I want to look at the end of this discourse and understand the things that he's articulated that were so troubling to the people. He begins where we left off last week. Remember in 35, uh, 35, Jesus responds to them. They've said, sir, give us this bread, right? He says, "I I am the bread. They say, give us this bread. And he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He says, you keep asking me for food. You keep asking me for bread, but I've already told you the bread I have is myself. What I'm offering to you, what you need is me. And yet here's a whole crowd of people, he says, who've seen me and yet they don't believe this. And he goes on to articulate why he doesn't find that troubling. He says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The first thing in this second section of the discourse here that Jesus articulates is his confidence in the will of God. He's got all these people whose will, the plans in the mind of man, their will is that he would feed them. And they keep saying, hey, give us some lunch, give us some manna, give us some food. And he looks at them and he says, my job here is not to do your will or even to do my own will, but my job is to be in alignment with the Father's will. And the Father's will is that I would lose none of the people that he brings to me. 
God brings people to me, and my job is to preserve and to protect them, to give them eternal life, and to raise them up on the last day. And what I'm preoccupied with is not satisfying the will of the crowd of 10,000, but satisfying the will of my Father, which is that I protect and preserve the eternal life of those he has drawn. So the first thing Jesus speaks to that kind of ruffles their feathers is he says, I'm not motivated by the will of the crowd. I'm motivated by the singular will of the creator of the universe. And the singular will of the creator of the universe is not just that your stomachs get filled with bread, but that your lives be transformed through resurrection life. Look at verse 40. It's essential. Such a beautiful doctrinal statement he makes here. He says in verse 40, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's will. God's will is not just that I travel around the countryside feeding people bread feeding people fish. He he first articulates his confidence in the will of God. And this makes them frustrated, right? So it says in verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The people grumble. And I love the irony in their grumbling because we also see, I mean, moments ago, they were looking at Jesus and they said, hey, if you want to prove to us that you're kind of a big deal, one of the things you could do is you could give us manna. I don't know if you know this, but in Exodus, God gave manna to the people, and they really loved it, and we wouldn't mind tasting a little bit of that, right? So now Jesus looks at them, and he says, no, you don't need manna. What you need is me. I am the bread from heaven, and the people grumble. The reason I think that's kind of funny is that in Exodus, when God provided for the temporal needs of the people through manna, you know what they did eventually? They grumbled about it. When God gave them temporal food, they grumbled. Now he gives them spiritual food in the person of Jesus Christ, and we find them grumbling again. And I tell you that all grumbling, universally, in all of us, when we grumble, that grumbling is rooted in in what we think we know, right? It's rooted in what we think we know, what we think we deserve, what we think we're owed, what we think people uh, should give to us, and the contrast between those things. When we're frustrated and grumbling, it's usually because we think we know how things should be, and that's not how they are. That's, That's why the people in Exodus were grumbling. They thought they knew what God should do and how he should do it, and he didn't do it the way they wanted. It's no different in John chapter six. It says the people here are grumbling because Jesus says he's the bread that comes down from heaven. They're going, well, you know, Jesus is from Nazareth and uh, no offense here, but we've been to Nazareth and it ain't heaven, right? Like it's not that great. So either he's not talking about Nazareth or he's making a claim that we just can't abide, right? He can't mean real heaven because he couldn't be from there. We know his mother and father, right? We know Joseph and Mary, And so what's he talking about when he says that, you know, his father is God and that he and his father are one? We know Joseph. Can I I tell you, it's interesting. Their grumbling is rooted in what they think they know. But the sad reality is these people don't know his father. Joseph is not his father. Joseph is his adopted father, but his real father this crowd does not know. And their grumbling is rooted in what they think they know, but what they think they know is wrong. He hears them grumbling, and so Jesus responds. He's already talked about his confidence in the will of God. Now he says this in verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember, their confidence is what they think they know. Their confidence is what they've learned or what they think they understand. And he goes, there's no reason for you to grumble among yourselves. The reality is that you can't come to me, and then consequently you can't believe in me unless the Father draws you. The fact that you don't believe, the fact that you aren't following me, the fact that you haven't come is proof of the fact that the Father has not drawn you. Now this is, a, this is verse 44 is a fundamental truth that you and I need to get our arms around here. It's worth taking a moment to kind of talk about because it speaks directly to our evangelistic efforts. And what I mean by that is we all are called to be ambassadors, right? Those of us who are followers of Jesus are called to carry the message of reconciliation, that God is not holding men's sins against them, but that all men and women can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of Christ and his resurrection power. We're called to tell the world that story. But the reality is that no one is saved because of our clear articulation of that truth. No one is saved because of our dynamic preaching style. No one is drawn to Christ because we have a really cleverly written gospel tract or because we do a really incredible event at Christmas time. It isn't our efforts or our machinations that draw people to the Son of God. It is only the Father that draws people to Christ. And you might go, well, yeah, but it's important that we hand out gospel tracts and whatever. I'm not saying that it's not important to articulate the gospel. It simply isn't dependent upon us whether people believe. Belief is something only God stirs in the hearts of people. Have we been called to be ambassadors? Absolutely. But salvation is the work of God in the heart of people. So I can't look, if I, if I were to articulate the truth of the gospel to someone and they choose not to believe, I don't have to go, well, I'm a terrible evangelist or I don't have the gift of evangelism or I'm not good at this Jesus stuff because that's God's business, not mine. My job is simply to articulate the truth with clarity, as is yours. I articulate the, the, the truth with clarity, but as Jesus says, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. That's a fishing term. It's the idea of dragging in the nets. The Father is the one who does that drawing. These people are frustrated and grumbling because what Jesus has said is different than what they know. He says, don't grumble. It's not gonna be about what you know or about what you believe or about what you think that makes the difference. It's gonna be about the power of God within you. And he goes on to articulate that in a couple of different ways. He says in 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and here he quotes from Isaiah 54, it is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. He's paraphrasing here. In Isaiah 54, the prophet Isaiah said, the Lord will teach your children. He says it's written, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What's he talking about? He says, you guys have heard a lot of things and you've learned a lot of things, but what you've heard and what you've learned and what you know and what you understand have not resulted in your coming to me, which means you haven't been listening to God, you've been listening to somebody else. The prophet Isaiah himself said, there is a teaching that's greater than the, prophet of the, or the teaching of the prophets and the teaching that's greater than the teaching of the prophets is the very teaching of God. And he says, here I am teaching you and you have not come to me because you're not interested in listening to the teaching of God. You're interested in listening to the teaching of yourselves. He says, that the prophets themselves say there is a superior teaching and if you were hearing it, if you were hearing the voice of God, you would come to me. The fact that you're not coming to me means you have not heard him. You have not heard me. And he goes on with another example. In 45 he said, it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. He says, not only is my teaching superior to whatever other voices you've been listening to, but he says, just a moment ago, you were clamoring over yourselves to get manna from me. But can I tell you, manna is insufficient for what you really need. He says, because think back to the stories from Exodus. Your fathers and your mothers, they ate manna in the wilderness, and you know what? They still dropped dead. The manna sustained them for a day, or it sustained them over the course of a weekend, but it has not sustained them into eternal life. So what you're asking me for is just a temporal fix that doesn't really get to the core of what you need. What you need is the true bread, myself. He says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, and I am superior in every way to the temporal bread your fathers ate and still dropped dead. The bread that I give you, the bread that I am, will, will create in you eternal life, superior in teaching, superior in in, uh, eternal sort of sufficiency. Jesus looks at them and said, it's not about what you know. He's demonstrating his confidence in the will of God and in the authority of God. And in fact, if you have one of our John journals and you're taking notes, I'd love for you to underline the last part of verse 51. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Here it is, underline this. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Underline that sentence and circle the word give. Remember, they've been asking him to give them. Give us some food. What sign will you give us? What kind of manna can you give us? Give us, give us, give us. He goes, look, I'm not saying that I'm not giving you anything. I'm not telling you you're gonna go home empty-handed. I'm telling you that what I'm giving you is not what you're asking for, but what I'm giving you is what you truly need. What I will give you is my flesh. And he's talking about his sacrifice. He's pointing to the cross. Lest we ever be under the assumption that Jesus was surprised by the crucifixion or that he was caught off guard or that he was murdered by people who didn't like him, let me dispel any of those myths and tell you Jesus knew from the get-go he was headed to the cross. That from the get-go he recognized he would give his flesh as bread. That wouldn't just satisfy people for a night or a weekend, but would satisfy people into eternity. He says, it's not that I won't give you anything, I give you my flesh. And they they don't like this, right? I get it, I get it. 52, they respond this way to him. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We've rowed all the way across the Sea of Galilee. We've sailed all the way over here. We've gathered. We've found him after all that work. We put in all this effort, and all we asked for was a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, and now he's talking about giving us his flesh. Gross, right? How can he give us his flesh? We don't, like, what, he's going to have us nibble on his fingers and toes? We don't want his flesh. We just want a sandwich. We've made that very clear, right? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they're frustrated because they've not been listening to what he said. He's already made it clear, and I'll tell you, in this case, Jesus hears them grumbling about him giving his flesh to them to eat, and instead of making it easier, right, like you might look at this and go, okay, Jesus, marketing strategy 101, the people are kind of bothered by you saying you're giving them your flesh, so just walk that back a little bit, right? Just walk it back and go, hey, it's not as creepy as it sounds, I'm not a vampire or whatever. Instead of walking it back, Jesus doubles down, right? He doubles down. Look at what he does. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Look at verse 53 and following. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 1 had already articulated to us that Jesus had life in him. In him was the life of man, right? In him was life. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, unless you feed on my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Why? Because life is in his flesh and blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 54, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, as opposed to that which only satisfies for a day or an hour. My blood and flesh is true, right? And he says in 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Man, you wonder why the people got up and went, right? At this point, everybody's starting to pack their bags, like, we need to go, right? We gotta get out of here. This guy is creepy. But Jesus is articulating something that's very important for us to understand. And I, and I want to speak to this because this text is a sort of historically uh, divisive text, right? This is a text that I want to speak to some of these divisions with clarity. One of the things we need to understand from the text is that Jesus here, in this case, is not speaking about the Lord's Supper or the communion table. He's not speaking about Eucharist. And, and classically, Christians have sometimes gotten bogged down in this because they look at it and they go, oh, he says, if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you can't have eternal life. So what he must be meaning is, when you don't eat the cracker, if you haven't eaten the cracker and you haven't drunk the juice, then you don't have eternal life. He's saying eternal life is bound up in this and that these elements aren't just crackers and juice, but but they literally are the body and blood of Christ transubstantiated for resurrection life. Can I tell you, that isn't what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in this text, Jesus isn't talking about communion at all. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. In this text, what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture. He's using a metaphor to describe something he's already said with great clarity. Anytime we're wondering what Jesus is saying in the scripture, we always have to recognize that he isn't going to contradict himself in the same discourse, right? He isn't going to say one thing and then another that contradicts it. So back up with me, if you will, to the clarity with which he's already given us about eternal life in verse 35. In verse 35, he said in no uncertain terms, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he doesn't say in verse 35, whoever goes through a certain ceremony or eats a particular thing will not be hungry or whoever drinks a particular thing. He says what? Come and believe. Come and believe is the criteria for, for eternal life. Resurrection life is found in faith. It's found in belief. He says the same thing further down here in 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. End of sentence, right? Whoever believes Eternal life is based in belief. So when he paints this picture of eating his flesh, feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood, he's using a metaphor to re-emphasize the same thing he's already articulated. In Jesus' sermon here, the idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is synonymous with belief. And it shouldn't be too shocking to us, right? It shouldn't be too overwhelming that he uses a metaphor. We, we even in our common language, use metaphors of ingestion and hunger to articulate other things, right? I was uh, helped this week by a guy who says, we, we talk a lot about devouring books. Man, I just, I just wanted to devour that book, right? We drink in great lectures, we sometimes find stories hard to swallow, yeah? 
We chew over a matter often. We've got to kind of chew that over. And unfortunately, many of us find, find ourselves frequently eating our words, right? The idea of ingestion, the idea of consumption is one that's common to us. Jesus is saying, you get this already. You've been clamoring after me to give you some food to put in your belly. What I'm telling you is you don't need bread. You need my sacrifice. Jesus paints a metaphor here in the, in, in the equation of consumption and appropriation and satisfaction. He is true food and true drink. What we need is not another sandwich, but what we need is his sacrifice. And I was, I was actually greatly helped this week by an older story. There's a story about David and his mighty fighting men. You know those guys, right? David and his mighty fighting men out of 2 Samuel. And uh, in this story out of 2 Samuel 23, David and his men are encamped uh, close to Bethlehem, but Bethlehem is occupied by the Philistines. So here's what it says, 2 Samuel 23, 13 and following. It says, and three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate, right? So David's here with his mighty man and he looks at him and he goes, man, you know what I want, right? I don't know about you guys, but what I can really use right now is a cup of that cool, clear water from the Bethlehem well. You guys remember how good that water tastes at the Bethlehem well? The bummer is Bethlehem is occupied by the Philistines, so too bad for us, but man, that's what sounds good to me. I could really use a cup of that water from that well. Oh, I can't wait until I can have that again. Look what happens next. In 16 of 2 Samuel 23, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, Right? David said he wanted a drink from the well of Bethlehem, so let's go. So they go on this secret mission, they fight their way in, they get a cup of water, and they bring it back to him. And they give, hey David, remember when you said you wanted a drink of water from the well? They're like, here you go. And look at what David does. David, it says in verse 16, would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. David gets the cup of water that they fought for. He pours it out before the Lord and said, verse 17, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. David goes, this is just a cup of water and it isn't worth the price. It isn't worth the cost that three of my mighty men, three of my friends, three of our valorous warriors would fight in there to get me a cup of water. It's not worth it. It's the equivalent of me drinking their blood. I will not drink this cup because it costs too much. And he pours it out. Jesus looks at the crowd in John chapter six and he says, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. Eternal life is only found in drinking my blood and eating my flesh. And essentially, we look at that and we go, it's too much. It's too costly. And he's saying, you cannot brush it away and you cannot pour it out. I want you to look at the cost. I want you to look at what I paid. I want you to recognize that it cost me my flesh and my blood given for you that you could have life. And then you have to choose to drink it still. Because this is the only way you'll have life. I think, you know, Jesus looks at the woman at the well and he goes, hey, you need living water. And when he says, hey, you need living water, she's like, give me this water, right? He looks at the crowd and he says, hey, you need my blood and my flesh inside you. And they're like, no thanks. It's not worth it. 
But what Jesus is inviting us as his followers to do is to not look away. Don't don't look away from the disturbing images that he paints here. He wants these images to be disturbing on purpose so that you who have received eternal life and those of you who will receive eternal life in the future understand the great cost at which that life came. He says, those who drink my blood and eat my flesh will abide in me. Somebody told me this week that when we eat a piece of bread, that every, every molecule of the bread is sort of absorbed into every cell of our body within minutes, right? Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will be in you and you will be in me. That there is no more dividing line, that we are together, I and you and you and me. Jesus has already articulated his confidence in the will of God, in the authority of God, and here he clearly articulates his confidence in the provision of God. The provision of God. The people don't like this, right? So not surprisingly, go back to John chapter six. Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 60, many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? By the way, that word translated hard is not, this is difficult to understand. They're saying this is offensive, right? This is disturbing. Hard there doesn't mean, we're having a hard time kind of understanding it. They're saying this offends us. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? You're bothered by the fact that my body and blood have been given for you and that you have to consume them, that you have to appropriate them, that you have to receive that sacrifice to yourself, that I will be poured out in order to obtain eternal life. You're offended by that? He says, if you're offended by that, just wait. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So you think this bothers you, just wait, because you have this picture in your head of me as a king. You have this picture in your head of me as a revolutionary. Just wait until you watch me ascending to where I was before. Now, there's a, there's a double picture here. The ascension to where he was before, he's certainly talking about his throne, right? He's certainly talking the Philippians 2 idea, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? He is talking about his ascension. He's saying, you're having a hard time comprehending this now, but wait until you see me in my majesty. Wait until you see me in my glory. There is an encouragement here, but the encouragement comes coupled with a rebuke because in order for him to ascend to the clouds, he has to go through the cross, And so when he says, just wait until you see me ascending, I would want to point you back to John 3 where he says, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And he's talking about his death. He says, you think this is hard to swallow? Just wait. It's going to get harder before it gets easier. But ultimately, it's going to be incredibly easy because you will see me return to the place I was before. But that's through the cross to the clouds. The disciples hear him. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He says, I can see you grappling with these things. You're grappling with the fact that I haven't satisfied your physical needs. You're grappling with the fact that I've undermined your personal autonomy and authority. You're grappling with the fact that I've elevated my authority, that I've undermined your religion and what you know, that I've kind of pulled the rug out from underneath your practices and how valuable they aren't, right? He says, you're frustrated because I've offended your sensibilities, The reality is you're wrestling in your flesh, but the flesh is no help when it comes to things of the Spirit. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He says, I can see you wrestling in your flesh, but what we're discussing here is our confidence in something greater than the flesh. We're talking about our confidence in the will and the authority and the provision of God, and he is central to the issue. I've spoken the words of life to you, but there are some of you, as he knows, that do not believe. You've heard it, but you do not believe, he says. And that's why I told you, Verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? The essence of this is, you're not leaving, are you? Right? 10,000 plus, and now we're down to 12. And he looks at them and says, you guys packing your bags? And Peter comes back with this beautiful articulation. His response, he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He, he says, yeah, are our sensibilities offended here? Yeah, ha- have you not necessarily provided what we thought you were gonna provide? Are you totally sort of reworking what we thought we knew? Have you made it clear that it's not about our own choice, but about your Father's will? You've kind of pulled the rug out from under everything we are and everything we've known, and is that hard? Yeah, but look, you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we gonna go? Is it hard? Yes, but we have chosen you, Peter says, and Jesus goes, Right? He goes, we, we chose you. And Jesus says this at the end of the chapter, verse 70. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. It's interesting that Judas shows up not once but twice in this text, that John points us to Judas twice here. I want you to think about the way life feels when the many plans you have in your mind are overruled by the purposes of God. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but the purpose of God will stand. Remember Proverbs 19. And sometimes it feels like God is losing the battle. Sometimes it feels like things are off the wheels, like God has checked out, that he's not paying attention. When your physical needs don't get met, right? When your authority is undermined, when, when, when your knowledge, you're starting to question even what you thought was true, And Jesus is pointing us again and again to look away from the flesh, to look away from what we think we know, to look at the will of God, to look at the authority of God, to look at the provision of God, and to look at the purpose of God. And here at the end of this story, he looks at them and he says, look, you didn't choose me. That affirmation that you just made where you said you were the holy one of God, where else are we going to go? It feels to you like you picked me, but buddy, I picked you. And you know what? Not only did I pick you, I picked the guy sitting next to you who's going to betray me in a couple of years. Judas is sitting in the circle of those that were chosen by Jesus and what Jesus is saying is that even with betrayal and even with brokenness and even with hurt and pain, God's will and God's authority and God's provision and God's purposes will not be thwarted. Jesus is there, Judas is there, and Jesus knows Judas is there. And Jesus isn't daunted or discouraged by that at all because God's purposes will stand. God's purposes will stand. I think many times for us, we sort of look at our relationship with Jesus and we, we think of it in terms of us like picking Jesus out of a lineup, you know? Like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and all these guys are lined up and it's on us to go, eh, well, I've weighed all the evidence and I've thought about it a lot and I've talked to some great people and uh, I'm picking Jesus, right? And then he's like, yay, you 
pick me into your heart or whatever. Can I tell you? That's the wrong picture. That's a wrong picture. The picture that Jesus paints for us in John chapter six in this discourse is not of us picking Jesus out of a lineup, but of us falling to our knees before the will and the authority, the provision and the purpose of God and recognizing that he chose us. That he picked us. And that he is in control even when it seems like we've gone from 10,000 plus to 12. And even in that 12, there's still some mess. And God is in control even in the midst of the mess. Jesus affirms his confidence in the will and authority, the provision and purpose of God, and that the people find too much to take. But let it not be so for us. Jesus finds peace and rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. And you and I can find absolute peace and rest in the sovereignty of God as well. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a clear view of your will and your authority and your provision, your, your centrality and your purpose. God, that we would see those things and recognize that even when our physical needs aren't, needs aren't met and, and when we feel like our authority is set aside, when what we know isn't what's most important, when our sensibilities are offended, that you are on the throne, that you are not discouraged, that you are not dismayed, that you're not sidetracked because you are in control. Help us to find real peace and rest in the purposes of God. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.